Can you hear me now? There we go. Well, thank you. I, I know uh, both Hal Hayes and Raymond Choi. So, went to church with them at Grace Community Church in the San Fernando Valley. Well, you better not have a pastor who <laughs> walks around a lot. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, anyway, I thank you very much. I, as, uh, as was introduced, I'm going to speak about our uh, ministry in Morocco. And I haven't spoken on that for quite a while. It's, it's a rather uh, interesting time in our lives and a uh, rather emotional time as well. Uh, being expelled from a country isn't something that you think, wow, that's exciting. Well, you know, it, it, was, it was not exciting. It was really hard, really hard. But, um, and uh, it's hard to leave uh, the church there in Morocco. And we fell in love with him. And then one day we just had to leave. So... Uh, it happens all the time, I guess, to missionaries. Since we left, uh, actually in the last couple of years, about 150 <laughs> were expelled. It's really very hard. Uh, the government, for long periods of time, they aren't doing anything. And then some, every now and then the, the paw, you might say, the lion comes down. And So anyway, I, wanna, I haven't spoken about Morocco in about five years. And so yesterday I was preparing uh, really a subject that I know really well, because it's really on my heart uh, quite a bit. But... I uh, had to review a lot of things, and it just emotionally got back into it again. And uh, anyway, as I, as I speak, it's, it's not a topical, exegetical message. It's more or less a story with some verses thrown in there, kind of missionary style. You know, that's what missionaries do, you know, tell stories and throw some verses in there. Uh, next week, I'm going to speak, and we'll definitely do something exegetical. We're going to look at Matthew 7, 1 through 12. Especially covering verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs and cast your pearls before swine. I'm going to give you what I think uh, will challenge your, your, let's say your, your methods of interpretation. On, and, well, not challenge, I mean application of your methods of interpretation to that passage that is so often uh, misquoted. Mis, uh, well, let's begin in word of prayer, then we'll get going, okay? Our gracious Lord, thank you, Father, for uh, your love for us. Lord, I thank you for this body of believers here and gathered with us together today, even though I'm not a part of this uh, church. In one way, I'm not, but in another way, I am, because I confess as well to everyone in here, the Lord Jesus Christ is my Savior. Lord, we've all been baptized by one Spirit as well, and therefore we have fellowship with one another. But Lord, we also need a Come today and, and uh, look at your word and also see how you have worked and are working in the world, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. My wife uh, couldn't make it today. She has a heart uh, problem, and it, which uh, limits her ability to travel. Uh, or if she's doing something like yesterday, we're out all day with our daughter, and so that usually means the next day or so she, she has to stay inside. So... She is not able to come. I have three children, one uh, oldest, 25, her name is Jennifer, and she married a, 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 scientist, a rocket scientist, literally, who works with NASA, and they live up in Lancaster, and she has a baby in her womb, so I'll become a, a grandpa in October. It's funny, I, I'm just mentioning that, it's thinking about Venice. There's this one lady in Venice I know is demon-possessed, and she shouted my name one day when I go out every now and then and pass out tracks. And last week I was going down and pass out tracks, and I asked her if she wanted one. She said, no, I don't want one. I don't need it. Then I started to walk away, and she goes, you, Grandpa! <laughs> That's Venice. Anyway, and I have another son who's 22, uh, also recently married, about a year and a half. And then we have a 15-year-old daughter, a little break there. She keeps us uh, going. Her name's Lauren. So anyway, we are going to talk about Morocco. And just a kind of a disclaimer, um, I titled this, I Will Build My Church, because that was a, a, a verse, a phrase by the Lord that, that really encouraged me and really was transforming in, in my life. And um, I just want to make certain that, you know, you know it's, it's, uh, uh, I, I enjoy very much speaking about Morocco. And uh, one thing, it's not just the time at a missionary you know, Bill helps the Lord build his church there, but also the Lord does so much in the life of a missionary. And uh, 
probably that is the person that is greatly, most greatly affected through, the, through one's ministry itself because the Lord just uses uh, his spirit and, and transforms a life in a, in a great way, especially when you're under intense circumstances uh, such as we experience. So uh, all this is to say, you know, my life was just transformed greatly in ministry over there, and I just give the glory to Christ. And uh, <clears throat> so I, a lot of times, you know, because I'll be saying, I did this, I did that, but, you know, behind that is not only uh, a, a loving wife who's supporting me, but also a great God in our Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, as it was said, I, I was saved in Sweden back in 1975, Going there at University of Uppsala for one year. And then actually, I went overseas because I just needed to get out of the country for it. I was lost. Went to school at Cal State University, Chico, Northern California, and a, kind of a wild school. And I was a wild guy. And so, <laughs> wildness got old after a while. So, third year of college, I applied to go overseas. Actually, it was my fourth year that I actually went to Sweden. And that emptiness that was in my heart in Chico, California, followed me to Sweden. And I was lonely and lost as anything. So I cried out to the Lord on uh, September 15th, 1975, and the Lord filled me with his spirit. And, and I, uh, I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. I didn't know. Born again, I mean, back a couple of years prior to that, at least five years prior to that, some lady on Lagoon Beach and came up to me and said, have you been born again? Are you, are you a Christian? I never heard that phrase before. I'm, well, I'm a Christian. I go to church all the time. But no, it never happened until three, three or so years later in Sweden. So I was discipled by missionaries, and I was just so impressed by uh, their commitment to serve the Lord overseas. And I said, well, I want to be a missionary as well. I want to be a missionary as well. And there's just kind of in some inherent... I wasn't you know, surrounded by a, a church... Uh, it wasn't really in a good, strong church where I lived there. And so I read the Bible, and, and I believed it. And in talking to people, and then I started sharing Christ, and some people became Christians, and, and they, their lives were transformed as well. And I was uh, studying to be a limnologist, which is a freshwater ecology. And I loved, I loved ecology, and I loved the earth. And, uh, but, you know, something, I, my goal prior to that was to save the earth. I would have been, I've been like one of the founders of Earth First. You ever heard that group? <laughs> And, uh, but when I, people started becoming Christians and having this transformation, the same transformation that I did, I just said, wow, I'd rather save lives, help save lives and save the earth, even though saving the earth is a good thing. Well, so then I therefore went to Bible school at Grace Community Church in the San Fernando Valley. Then I went to seminary. The master's seminary wasn't there at the time, so I took classes at the Talbot Seminary. And graduated in about 84, got married. Uh, but during that time, prior to uh, even having my wife come into my life, at that time, by the end of uh, the 70s there, I just had a strong desire to go overseas and, and be a missionary. And I, In fact, I wouldn't even go to chapel to listen to mission speakers because it was just, <laughs> I, was, I would have stopped school and gone right then. If they, it was such a strong urge. And, but I wanted to go to a place that was a challenge. I was a single guy. Just give me, just give me the toughest place. And so I went into the missions pastor there at Grace Church, and Monty Brewer was his name. And I said, Monty, where's the hardest place on earth to go? <laughs> he rolled out this map in North Africa and the Middle East. And so I just kind of put that back in my mind. After I got married and graduated from Talbot, then... Uh, well, then came the time to make a decision about what we wanted to do, and my, my wife had no experience at all. She hardly been out of the San Fernando Valley. So, our church had a cross-cultural training program, which was centered in in Morocco, of all places. And so we were told or required to go on that uh, six-month, five-month training program in Morocco. And uh, while we were there, we loved it. We did well in the language and learned the culture. So we went back then as full time in '88. But uh, just a little bit about Morocco. Morocco is a beautiful country. They call it like California of the Mediterranean. It's really, really a pretty area. The latitude, uh, Casablanca is about the same latitude as Los Angeles. The, the vegetation is the same, nice climate. Uh, it's a beautiful country. In fact, one poet had said, the French poet said, they're in springtime. Now, they don't have a lot of herbicides. Well, they do, but not, they don't use them as extensive as we do. So a lot of wildflowers come up. In the springtime, the fields are you know, golden and purple and yellow. And 
One French officer said, like, God just took a bucket of paint all over Morocco. Really beautiful. It's a friendly place. It's hospitable. But it's dark. It is spiritually dark. (laughs) Islam rules there. I mean, it's like 99.999% are Muslim. No visible church there. I mean, you might see a church building for Catholics or Protestants. Foreigners, but nothing for, nothing for the Moroccans. They will not acknowledge that anybody's a Christian, a Moroccan. Does not exist, they would say. It's just that they keep people, Islam, what it does, it keeps people in ignorance. Ignorance. That's why, you know, the satellites, when they started palping up all these satellite dishes on there, that's really threatening to the Arab world, and probably why you have the result of the Arab Spring. But you know, 20, 30 years ago, that wouldn't have happened. So the, no Internet, no, no uh, satellite dishes. Keep the people in ignorance and darkness. And as I was learning about Islam there, I, I kind of learned more by talking to people and learning about it. I was talking to one guy, and I said, well, why do you believe... Uh, why do you believe Islam? He says, well, because of you know, the miracles in it and all the scientific knowledge in it. I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah, for example, if a fly drops into a glass of water, so says the, the Quran or the Hadith, you don't just take the fly out of the water. You take your finger and you dab the fly around in the water. Then take him out and you say, Bismillah, in the name of God. Then you drink it. And I started laughing. <laughs> I thought he was joking. And he had this serious look on his face. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I didn't know if that was really true or not. So I went to a, this, co- this, uh, Hanu, this uh, shop at the end of the street, all the little uh, neighborhoods, that was like a little, their own 7-Eleven type of thing, even smaller, usually a small garage converted into a convenience store. So I asked this friend there of mine, I said, you know, if a, a fly drops into a glass of water, what do you do? <laughs> He goes, you take your finger and you poke it in the water. <laughs> take it out and say, Bismillah, in the name of God, and you drink it. <laughs> then he, had a, he was a little bit older than the younger fellow right next to him, and I said, I looked at him, he goes, no, no. He himself didn't believe it. But this was an example to me. Whoa, this country is really dark. There's just no influence of Christ. I mean, I didn't become a Christian when I was 20, 21, you know, prior to that, I would always hear things about Christ. You could turn on the radio or the TV, go by a church, or in my case, we had even attended a church. You always hear the gospel. My mom even hung up on our bulletin board, the, the golden rule, to treat others as you'd have them treat yourselves. And it's influencing. Even though you might be, not be a believer, it, it's still a, a light. The Morocco is just hardly anything. Anything. Very few Christians. I think out of a country about the size of California, there might, might be 2,000 Christians. Maybe a little bit more now since we've been there. But we were there about 2,000. But of those 2,000, on a Sunday, only maybe 150 of the whole country would get together. I imagine there are probably that many right here right now. So, I mean, this would be a, those who had the, say, the, I don't say the, I'll use the word, the, the boldness or the courage to meet together. On a Sunday, it numbered about 150. Small little groups, you know, it might be three, four, seven, ten, fifteen. Super large church, might be, you know, 20, maybe. You know, just to illustrate how many that would be out of, uh, you know, 30 million, let's say. Say if the Dodger Stadium was filled to capacity, 55,000 people, the announcer gets on and say, what? they're all full of Moroccans. When all the Christians here to come down on the field... That'd be one and a half. <laughs> That's all. So, but you know something? It was, it was just, to me, it was gold. You know, I read the book of Acts. I, I wrote, for my salvation, I read the book of Acts, and, and it, it was exciting. People getting saved, getting baptized, and getting persecuted, and they went out, and Still serve the Lord, and I, and I read that. And, and, but then I did my life here in California, and it was just it was kind of a disconnect there. Lord, you know, I want something like this. So, 
be signed to go to Morocco. There was missions, the missions movement started in the late 1800s in Morocco. Our agency that I was with was called Gospel Missionary Union. They, they changed their name about 10 or so years ago to Avant Ministries. But they started about 18, uh, 1890s there. I used to read the old accounts, too. They even had them still, the old accounts that they were missionary. And they, they'd take about a two-week trip over to uh, what be present-day Tangier, set anchor, then take all their goods off of the, the boat, put them in a little dinghy, then go to shore, get on a donkey, and then for two weeks they'd ride by donkey back down to Meknes, where we were. I used to complain about a four-hour train ride from Tangier to Meknes. And, oh, I get in at 11 o'clock at night. So... And I'd read that article, and I'd kind of go, well, it's not too bad. <laughs> a lot of missionaries gave their, their lives, and they ministered up until 1967, and the government said, okay, all missionaries out. So from 1960 on, you, you can't be a missionary in Morocco. You have to go there for some other reason. I, I taught English for a while, and I started my own business uh, creating uh, Arabic, uh, Arabic language material. But anyway, the church there, there's already a little... Nucleus of a church going on in the city of Meknes where we lived, and they called it the Dar Kibir. I mean, the big, the big house it was an old house in an old part of town, about uh, 300 years old, around there at least. Narrow streets, cobblestone, no cars could go through that area. In fact, there's a little kind of a maybe 10 foot wide cobblestone street going down, and then there's a little alleyway. In fact, that was it's called Durbskat, is the alleyway. And there's about four houses, three houses in there, and at the end of that little maybe 30 yard, uh, maybe 20 yards, little alleyway was the door, number three for Durb Scott. And it was well known, well known throughout the community because when the missionaries were kicked out, there was one missionary with a gospel missionary union, her name was Isla Davis, and she just went down and changed her card, or residence card, from being a missionary to being an English teacher. Like, oh, Isla, you're a great lady, no problem. So, but she still carried on her ministry there. Taught a lot of kids, you know, English, and taught them uh, the Bible. Some of them even came people in government. Anyway, so that's kind of what we are. In fact, our, our ministry lives overlapped one year. She got a stroke and she had to go home, but we had the privilege of serving with her for one year. But during that, uh, the initial years, met uh, there's a uh, gentleman who had been in Morocco for a long time, and he described ministry in Morocco like a, like a, a wagon wheel or a wheel with a hub and spokes going into it. The spokes not overlapping like a bicycle, but spokes representing the different Moroccan believers. And what he was saying there, they don't cross over because they do not trust each other. It's true. Even Christians had a very, very hard time in this Islamic society to trust one another. The hub, he said, was usually would be the missionaries. They would trust the missionary. He was trustworthy, or he or she. So the spokes of this wheel would go into the missionary and trust, but when the missionary pulled out, what would happen? The wheel would collapse. So what he said was this kind of ongoing effect. Missionaries coming, the Moroccans trusting in them, he pulled out, the church would collapse. No trust. Again, that's as a result of a society that has no influence of the gospel. In fact, they have, a, they have a saying there in Morocco, kind of depicts that. Uh, when Moroccans, uh, outward, they're very friendly, and even inwardly they are, very friendly, very hospitable. And so when they greet you, they, 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 they smile, and they're, they're, they're asking everybody, about everybody in your family, you know, How, how's your mom, how's your grandma, how's the kids, and they just go on and on and on, while you're shaking their hand. You know, like, and then you're smiling the whole time. Labas, labas, you know, everything's fine. So they have the saying in Arabic, which means this, teeth to teeth. So they're greetings, the teeth to teeth. <laughs> teeth to teeth, and they're just smiling, but in the heart there's treachery. That's what they say about themselves. We greet each other, we're happy, we're smiling, but inside there's treachery. You're devising something against this guy. No trust. In fact, my wife, Margie, had a little disciples group. She started with a couple of these believers, Alteca and Sophia. And she wanted to talk about friendship. And so she said, well, who do you trust? Who do you trust in life? And Alteca thought for a while. And she said, uh, my sister. That's the only one. She comes from a family of about nine. And no friends, no anybody she trusted. Sophia thought for a while, thought for a while. Honestly, she said, I don't trust anybody. No one. 
Very hard to build a church where there's no trust. Very hard. Fear is probably the primary obstacle in a country like Morocco. You hear stories of when we got there, it happened, I'm sure, a good number of years before we got there, but in the northern part of Morocco, the, the Reef Mountains, uh, English missionary served there and he led a young man to Christ. He's teaching him the Christian gospel. He tells his family. One day he comes home, the young missionary, and there on his uh, doorstep is the body of this young man's throat slit. Dead. Shook him up so bad he went back home. And McNez, well, and therefore, you know, that's why I say there might be 2,000 believers in Morocco. By the way, they become believers often by, by listening to the radio. They hear the gospel over the radio. So they might become a believer inside their home, but now then to gather together as a group, that's another thing. That takes another commitment. We had a church, again, at its height, it was about 15 to 20 people. Mega church. <laughs> that's a mega church in Morocco. And it really should have been at least 50 or more. Zine Labadine, well, he remembers some of his friends. One guy was called in the police, uh, beaten up, and he eventually died. Zine was a great guy. He wouldn't come to church meetings. Because it's another thing to be a Christian, but then to identify yourself with a group of Christians where the police are always watching... Saeed should have been there. He lived 200 yards or less from the church that we met at the old Dirb Scott. Again, no cross on the building, but everybody knew what was going on inside. Hafidawi should have been there and his wife, Muna. Hafidawi should have been the pastor of the group, actually. He was older. He's a little bit older than I am. His brother, though, Hajj, was uh, in the secret police. And uh, Hajj, and the secret police told his brother Hafidawi, you stop going to that church. We're going to do something. We're going to do something to it. See, Muhammad should have been there. Mustafa should have been there. Yeah. Mustafa, he was an English teacher. In fact, we, we taught English together at the English Language Institute. He would never, never go outside the building with me. He was a foreigner, Bob, Christian. Mustafa did not want to be seen. Habiba should have been there. Well, she was a lawyer. Had a good job. Hamid should have been there. A couple of the guys that were an architect. See, whenever you, it's usually the single guys who aren't married, no kids, therefore, no job. They'll come. Once you get a job, you back off. You get married and have kids, you back off even further. So fear, though, is it fear? Fear of authority. Fear just kind of permeated. You know something? And I heard one time in my beginning years there, and, and uh, Moroccans would say this, we learned fear from the missionaries. Well, really? Really do, because they're very perceptive. They, they, if you're sitting with somebody in the coffee shop, and they're sitting there, and then the, the missionary or whatever is looking all around, or maybe he talks in coded language. Maybe he, meet certain areas, anybody's always looking around. And what that says to the, the, the national, the Moroccan says, I should be fearful too. So they learn fear from the missionaries. And I remember hearing that, and I said, they will not learn it from me. One missionary said this, no one will ever even know I'm a Christian. <laughs> what, what in the world are you doing in Morocco then? She's a missionary there living in Morocco, supposed to tell people about Christ, and no one will ever know. That's why then we get this uh, idea called contextualization. You try not to, and I can understand it to a degree. Well, you, well, you just shouldn't take a Muslim convert out and you know, put him in this church building, white church building with a steeple, make certain he prays a certain way, make certain everything's organized you know, just like they are in America. Okay, I can understand, well, okay, you don't, you don't need to do that, all that stuff. But it gets to the point, well, you know, just if a guy becomes a Christian, you know, well, encourage him to still go to, go to the mosque and pray the Islamic prayers. It's okay. In fact, you can even call yourself still a Muslim without feeling guilty because a Muslim is one who submits. 
That would be it. One who submits. Like, I, I didn't know about that until I was having a little uh, outreach to one guy in our community, and I had an older believer there, and a not, not as old believer there, and a non-believer. So we were sharing with this non-believer, and in the course of the discussion, the one fellow who was a little bit timid, he said, we Muslims... <laughs> It bypassed me, but the, the older believer caught it, and he, he, he came and told me. He said, do you realize what uh, Said said? He said, we Muslims. So I took Said to the t- top of the roof, which is akin to, to the woodshed. <laughs> I said, Said, did you say that? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, well, you know, it, it, I'm the one who submits to God. I said, what are you telling that young man who doesn't know Christ? What are you telling him? You're telling him you're still a Muslim. You believe in Muhammad and the Quran, etc. See Matthew 10. I'll be quoting some verses out of there. So if you ever want to park there again, again, it's not an exegetical work we're going to do today, but something I refer to because that Matthew 10 was a very, very pivotal or very important chapter in our ministry there. Matthew 10, 16 says this. Jesus is sending out his disciples. In fact, they were disciples, followers, and now he calls them apostles. So he's sending them out. That's why he says in verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, you're sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, I'm sure they understood that, being in that society where wolves and Sheep, well, what do wolves do? I mean, if we took a, a, a truckload of sheep and went up to a, in the forest somewhere where there's a lot of wolves and we let them go, <laughs> see, you're sheep in the midst of wolves. There's dangers there. And the missionary, I'd say the modern missionary, there's, there's this movement to just try to say, I've got to protect got to protect the, sh- the sheep from the wolves. So we do. We, we spray ourselves with wolves' scent. <laughs> we dress the sheep up with wolves' clothing, as it were. So they look just like them. Act like them. Pray like them. Golly. Verse 21, a little bit further, it says, His brother will betray brother to death. And the father, his child, and children, and rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. The Lord is not saying, avoid it. <laughs> avoid it. No, I send you out as sheep into the midst of wolves. Romans 8.30 says this, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, we shouldn't go around, I know, down the streets of Morocco and say, by the way, we're sheep here. You know, we're Christians. No. That's not the case. Be shrewd, you know, as serpents and wise as dove. Yeah, be wise as dove. But that doesn't mean you don't, you don't shut your mouth up and not tell anybody about Christ. He's always teaching that to the brethren. Look at If you had a glimpse of hell just for a nanosecond, you would want your parents your brothers and sisters there, and your friends. And you would speak, therefore. Your life wouldn't be as that much concern. If it meant death, well, then you sacrifice yourself. Even this term, underground church, where did that come from? Again, I understand we can't, in Morocco, you can't, you can't have a church building there. So the first church of McNez, you know, for Morocco. You can't have that, I understand this is from underground church. See, nationals hear that at the time. Underground church. Underground church. Underground. Yeah, we should be underground. See, what is that? See, we learn fear from the missionaries. You tell them that all the time, and it implies, yeah, I shouldn't be open about my faith. I shouldn't be telling people. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. 
nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Brethren, that's what we're doing in these countries. Until the church visualizes or understands it's, it's not an underground church, but it's a church, it's like a city on top of a hill. Like a candle on top of a, a lamp post put out there. Why? Jesus, if so, everybody can see. See, and this was my guide, especially Matthew 10, the New Testament. I don't have to listen to some missiologist out of you know, Pasadena to tell me to start teaching my guys to be Muslim, even though they're Christian. Tell your guys to be wolves underground. I continually would communicate that to the brethren. But there's always a sense of frustration because on my part, I'm a foreigner. You know what they would say to me if they got caught? Get out of the country. So there's this frustration within me. And then I understood it, the brethren. And oftentimes I say, you guys, I know. You know, I'm teaching this. There's a frustration on my part, but the word of God, the word of God says this. Well, our first five years there, I think the, the key word where there was patience. Why? Because you're going into society. I didn't know one lick, really, of, of Arabic at all. In fact, they speak Arabic and French in Morocco, and I said, well, I'm not going to learn French, because Arabs always, always come up to you, and they start speaking to you in French. Bonjour, bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Input. That's it. But then they continue to talk, and I said, no, I don't speak French. And I'd say never, let's kill him out of Francia. Please speak with me in Arabic. They look at me. See, see, the Moroccans, they just said, you're, you're a white foreigner, you speak French. So, no, I, so French is good, and a lot of them knew it, but they didn't. The Moroccans knew Arabic, Moroccan Arabic, a lot, lot better. So I want to learn their heart language to be able to communicate. So the first five years, it's primary learning language. I go down the, the shop down the street, and I would just sit on a you know, 30, 50-pound sack of sugar and just listen to Arabic. Just listen to it, listen to it, listen to it, listen to it. And I just wanted to communicate so bad. I mean, even six months there, I, I gave my first sermon. Basically, a, I wrote it out in Arabic. A guy helped me, and then I just read it. <laughs> Probably the most boring sermon ever. It's more like a Moroccan dialect exercise for me than for them. But kind of continuing. I got a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. Five years in, I remember sleeping in my garage one day, and Saeed came over after the service, and he goes, oh, that, I really learned something today. Really? Well, that felt good. <laughs> Five years it took. Patience. 94, though, we went home. You know, we didn't see a whole lot of fruit. There were some people committed there to the church. Not a whole lot. 94, we went home on uh, furlough. Yeah, home for a year. And I hear all these other missionaries talk. talking about the Philippines, Russia. Church is growing by leaps and bounds. And I say, Lord, why don't we just go to the Philippines? You know, I haven't really seen someone come to Christ yet there in Morocco. Ministry upon ministry, and you know, I have to get a job in Morocco, so my time is somewhat limited. Russia, the iron curtain's down now, God. Well, first Sunday back, and we went back after a furlough in the summer of 94, and we got there, and the first meeting we had two or three young ladies in a Sunday service. Two or three, and I go on. In the prime of my life. <laughs> I should be in fifth gear now in ministry. Two or three people there. And I start thinking about the, the missionaries that had served there for 40, 50 years, being riding on donkey back to get all their stuff down to McNez, reading about them going out into the mountains on horseback, preaching the word, preaching the word. Working so hard. One lady was probably one of the greatest missionaries in Morocco. It took her seven years before someone converted to She learned Arabic well, Hebrew well, Greek well. 
So I asked myself a question. You might ask yourself the same question with your, regards to your faith and service. Have I really given it my best? Have I really given it my best? That verse, I will build my church, the Lord said. I said, I don't think the problem is with Jesus. It might be me. Have I really given it my best? Have I really picked up my cross? So, and I said this, there was a fellow missionary there with us, and they, they left that year prior to us coming back on our furlough. And when your coworker leaves and then you're the only one there, you, you, know, you know what you feel like doing. <laughs> you're climbing a mountain, you two are going along, and one sits down to rest. You know what you, you, know what you feel like doing? <laughs> well, I'm going to continue on, you know. No, you feel like sitting down. <laughs> and he turns around and goes back down to base camp, whatever. You know, you feel like doing the same. But I felt all these missionaries there, and they just, like, they just passed the baton on me, passed the baton on me, passed the baton, and now it was in my hands. And we're the only ones there. The ship is either going to, you know, in human terms, you know, is going to stay afloat or it's going to sink. And it seemed like it was sinking very rapidly. But again, Jesus, you said you will build your church. So I had a period of really self-searching myself, purity, you know, it came to, 2 Timothy 2, for example, you don't need to turn there, but 2 Timothy 2, 20 says this, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, the dishonorable things, he will be useful to the master, prepared for every good work. I said, Lord, just search my soul, just remove anything. And yeah, I could remove a lot of things in my life that I didn't know. Little, little things sin infringe on my purity. I could be a lot more pure. Because I wanted to be that, that pure vessel, that honorable vessel that is useful to the master. That God use me. Prayer, purity, then prayer. Lord, this is your church. You will build it. Now, I know I couldn't have to sit back, so there's also work. Even Paul said he worked more than all the other apostles. And he says, not I, but the grace of God within me. But you read oftentimes, in the, I labored, I labored, I labored. When I was back east one time in the, the uh, New York, uh, Long Island, my cousin lived there way back in the early 70s, and he used to uh, work clamming, uh, getting clams out of the, the bay there. And, you know, so he had about a 10-foot pole with a basket on the end of it, one like that, kind of a iron rods went down, and then, and you, in the sand, you get in the sand, you have the wind blow your boat, so be moving you along, and you try to cover as much ground as you could. And he would make at that time, you know, say about 150 bucks a day. Wow, that's good for a high school kid back in 1972. But he pointed out, he goes, hey, see that guy over there, Bob? His, we call him the animal. He, he makes $300 a day. You know, that was huge back then. He just worked, 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 worked. I was trying to pilot the spiritual life. I said, you know, if I share Christ with more people, I'm probably more able to catch more. So I need to work harder, too. In Morocco, what they would do, they would, people would listen to the radio, I said earlier, and they hear a broadcast coming in from Malaga, Spain, or some Marseille, France, and I think even some Paris. And so these group, different groups, our group, Gospel Missionary Union, uh, North Africa Missions, I think they're called, uh, I forget what they're called now, and uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, all had these radio ministries. The guys would turn on their radio, guys or girls, listen to it, and they'd start doing correspondence courses. And so Malaga, Spain, would rather than send them directly from Malaga, the, the courses internationally through the mail, They'd bring into our country uh, loads of, the, say, the Gospel of uh, uh, John, for example, and the Book of Acts and the Book of Romans. And so what I would do in country, I would take those little uh, Gospel, uh, part of the Bible, put it printed on really thin paper, with an answer sheet, send it off to somebody within the country. Therefore, they were less likely to be open and confiscated. Then they would complete that course, send it back to Malaga, Spain. We'd get the... the, the 
information from Malaga, Spain. So now send them the book of Acts, for example. So we did that. Then in time, if somebody appeared to be pretty good at answering their questions or seemed to have a sincere interest in Christianity, then we would get the name of this person. And actually, actually before that, we, uh, a Moroccan himself who lived in Malaga, Spain, would come down and visit some of these people who are doing these correspondence courses. And then if he sensed somebody was good, he'd tell me. And I would meet with the guy, and if I sensed that he was trustworthy or has become a believer, I would share with him quite, often, quite a bit. Then we'd plug him into the church. So this way I met Rashid. Boaz from Malaga, Spain, a Moroccan grew up in Morocco. I lived in Malaga, Spain, came down into Morocco. Met with Rashid, met with me. He said, this guy seems to be pretty good. Take him. And I met with Rashid. And a young man at the time, he's probably about mid-20s. His father had died when he was 12 years old. He took over the olive business, uh, selling olives in the Marche down there. And so he had a little shop there with all these olives stacked up. And Rashid, uh, boy, you know, I, I never met somebody like him, a Moroccan like him. Just devoured the word of God. Devoured it. In fact, one time I went to him with a uh, study of the Bible in a year. You know, read the Bible through in a year. And I gave it to him. Next time I saw him, he goes, Bob, what is this? I read the Bible in a year. You know, I'm just going to put you on a plan and everything like that. He goes, Bob, I read through the New Testament three times every month. <laughs> the Old Testament a number of times a year. So why don't you just give me that back? <laughs> but it, it was obvious this, this young man had, uh, had become a believer, and so I brought him then on, on a Wednesday night Bible study where we have some other believers there. See, I was like the, the go-between. If I was since this guy, with his young, you know, I always met with guys, if he was... Faithful, he was true, he was sincere, then i bring him into the group. First meeting there, all the, and then uh, Rashid had to leave, uh, he was the first one to leave, and then all the others said, boy, that guy has Andu Hamas, they say, Andu Hamas. You heard that word, Hamas? It means zeal. Zeal for God. So Rashid just took off, and he started growing. He started talking to his friends in the Marche. The guy who sold dates next to him, the guy who sold vegetables, etc., like that. Good friend Muhammad was there, and he's really perplexed about Rashid. I mean, he saw he's talking about politics, socialism. One morning, one evening, I get a phone call from Rashid. Bob, can we meet? Like, yeah, okay. So we go down to the, the Tulip Cafe, and coffee shop I like to sat in, and Rashid came there and sitting there, and he's on the other side of the table, and he said, Bob, you know, I've been talking to my friends about, about Christ and all that, and Muhammad, uh, my friend, took me aside, and he said, Rashid, are you Christian? Yeah, I go, no, you should die. You should die, Rashid. And Rashid's a really emotional guy. And those words just penetrated him. And he's telling me this. Tears streaming down his, his cheeks. Well, here I am, you know. I'm, I'm an American, well protected by America, whatever. And, I never had anyone tell me I should die. But now as a shepherd, now i, I got to encourage him. So I started singing his favorite song, Allah manjitna, Allah manjitna. Allah manjitna, shkunikadaridadna. God is on our side. God is on our side. God is on our side. What can man do against us? <laughs> as Rashid's favorite him and yeah, you know, you wipe those tears away. Yeah, you're right, you're right. And he just took off. Then he just took off. And we were at that time. We just started these summer Bible school camps. It was kind of unheard of in Morocco. We started them in a resort city up in the mountains. And we were singing there for a whole week. We had Bible meetings. We had teachers come in, and I was organizing the whole thing. And it was great. And but had, we had the meeting house, and we had the, the the youth, there were about, in fact, about 50 there that day. That, that this time was really amazing. From the, from the, uh, anyway, the youth had to pass along a small road, dirt road, not too far to the place of meeting. And I'd go out a lot. And the neighbors there, there was a neighbor there sitting in the chair every day, white, you know, a white robe and a beard, reading the Quran. And he'd hear the singing. And the lady said, you know, they'd ask me, well, what, what is that poetry you're, you're doing, anything like that? And I said, well, you like it? Yeah, it, it sounds good. So the last night we were there, I, I walked into the group of Moroccans. They're all, they're all kind of happy, you know, the end of camp. And 
say, by the way, you know, I just met this, uh, people live on the street over there, and I said, uh, they, uh, they like the, the songs. In fact, I even asked them if they would mind if we came over there and sung to them. And I said that, you know, the, the fear levels go, you're talking about kids that won't let anybody know they're a Christian. Go out and sing to the neighbors there where they have the, call them the sahab al-hay, the owners of the beard. So we did. We took them out, and it was kind of like you ever seen you know, a kindergarten teacher pulling all the kids out of the rope. <laughs> they're all holding them under the rope and taking them over there, and they sang a song, and the people liked it. I mean, the neighbors, they had everybody, the maids and everybody on the balcony, and they had other people come over, and sang about three songs, and I tell you, they went back, they went out, they, you know, scared as little kids, you know, little sheep, you might say, they came back, the Moroccan spec to the meeting house, it's so excited, one girl said, I, seems like we're in a different country, so the church started growing, the church started to mature, the church started being a light, it started to become more like what Christ would want the church, not something hidden, in 1966, something really important happened. We were talking about another church in America, South, in our meeting, and uh, talking about how they, the believers down there, started being the ones who initially contacted these people who were interested in the gospel, rather than a foreigner. Because a, a lot of times you don't know who this person is who's doing these correspondence courses. He could be a secret police, for example. When our church heard that, uh, the church down in America is doing the same, they said, Bob, you're not doing that anymore. That was one of the biggest steps. I was just so happy about that. So they took over the job of visiting these contacts. Visiting these contacts. Now Rashid, he, again, he, he just took off. He hit the so this period of lull, you might say. When they... Wednesday evening prayer time, not prayer time, but a Bible study. Wednesday Bible study. We had about, used about 10 people to come. Rashid was late, 15, 20 minutes late. Rashid is never late. Let's put that in the back of my mind. That's Wednesday. Friday morning, we started getting together for a Friday morning breakfast and a prayer time, 6 a.m. in the old house. That Rashid suggested we start, and we started because of his zeal. Well, this Friday morning, he didn't show up. Hmm. I'm thinking, well, late Wednesday, Friday, he's not there morning. He's only a couple hundred yards from the, where the church is, the Marche, where he works. I went down there, and I said, he's there, piling up the olives, getting everything ready for him. Hey, Rashid, how you doing? I'm doing well, Bob. Everything's good. Well, oh, you know, I'm sorry I missed that. You know, my mom and I are going to go out and look at some land this afternoon. And, uh, you know, I just was really busy. Got to get going to work early. I said, okay. Uh, that means you aren't going to come out. Uh, we aren't going to go out in the afternoons. He and I would go out and visit uh, people interested in, in the scriptures. And so, so Friday afternoon, not going to be there either. Actually, that same day, that afternoon, I met with him. I said, let's, let's meet for coffee, Rashid. What's going on? Met with him. He said, Bob, everything's okay. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Well, so that was Friday. Then Sunday comes. Sunday, we started an early morning uh, Bible reading the Old Testament for Rashid because he had to go to work usually early, about 10 or so, so he couldn't come to the, the uh, worship service. So we had a special time for Rashid. Sunday morning, no Rashid. So I told Bashir, Bashir, go see what's wrong with, with uh, Rashid. Went there, came back, said, oh, he's just complaining about some things. So after church, uh, Rashid and I went out to lunch, to a little truck stop outside the city, and we ate, and said, Rashid, what's going on? He said, well, uh, you know, he started complaining about the ch church, of this and that, and whatever. And so I said, well, I don't know, so anyway. Turned negative, so he's not coming. Late Wednesday, didn't show Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Sunday. This Rashid is like my son. You know, he looked at me really as a, as a father as well. He, his father had died. Sunday, Monday came, 
and I was in prayer about Rashid. I was praying over him, and I said, Lord, what's going on there? And the Lord just like tapping him on the back. It's, it's nothing to do with the church, Bob. It's, he's afraid. And I knew that. And this frustration came over me. I said, God, this is the most pivotal point in our ministry. I said, God, do not let happen to the sheep that which will not happen to the shepherd. It's unfair. There's frustration I had. But you know, it's like that's exactly where the Lord wanted me. And I just, like this big burden got off my back. I met with Rashid later that, that evening for dinner. Went out to eat Monday and said, Rashid, what's going on? Okay, look at Bob, I'm going I'm to spell it like it is. Say it straight. I'm the oldest one in the family of five. I work and I put the, the bread on the table. I send my, my, kids, my kid brother and sister to college. I have to save up money so that they get married. If something happens to me, there's no bread on the table, there's no school, there's no marriage for my brothers and sister. Somebody blows the whistle, I'm put in jail. I looked down and said, Rashid? I said, do you love the Lord? I'm thinking about Matthew 10 here. He goes, yeah, Bob, you know I do. I love the Lord. I said, not enough. In fact, you aren't even worthy to be his disciple. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. I thought this was hard for me to say. It was like a knife. It was like a two-edged sword. Right into his heart. And I said, Rashid, you go home and you read Matthew 10. So we pardoned one his way. The next day, I met, went to his home, and at lunchtime, he was coming down the hill, and there he saw Bob again. Lunchtime, and met with him in the car again. said, how are you doing? He said, coming to meeting tomorrow night? No. Have you read Matthew 10? No, no. So we parted. I went home Tuesday. That's Tuesday in the afternoon. I get a phone call about 3 o'clock. Hey, Bob, can I come over? It's Rashid. All right, yeah, sure, come on over. Come on over and... Meet him down the stairs and walk up the stairs, and we get into our living room, right? And we sit down. He sits down, and bah, tears, a dam just breaks. He goes, Buff, forgive me. And he's heaving, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Has he missed about two meetings? <laughs> no, because he had put the fear of the world front of his love for Christ. Well, Rashid took off again. He just, I mean, took off in growth. He made it the next <laughs> Wednesday, the next day on time, and the church started to grow. Like Rashid was zealous now. He had his, went through these valleys. He reached out and had Bader saved. Bader was a guy doing correspondence. Courses. He met with him, led him to the Lord. Bader brought Mubarak and Mustafa to the church, also Fatiha. Another guy, Hisham. So the church was growing. It was exciting. People were happy. Bother, young man, still in high school last year. High school did something foolish. It was during Ramadan where you aren't supposed to eat during the day, daylight hours. They fast during the daytime, but they feast during the night hours. It's kind of changed their biological clocks. But at that school, some of his friends said, hey, bother, you're a Christian. Why don't you eat this orange? So he, he ate the orange in front of them. Ooh-ooh. His parents eventually found out, the principal found out, wouldn't let him graduate until he renounced his faith. The, the roof blew off of his family's house. I took him home one time and said, look, let them meet me. If looks could kill, when I walked in that, that family, if looks could kill, I'd had a thousand arrows. Father eventually did deny the Lord. Came to church the next Sunday like nothing happened. He goes, well, what do I say with my mouth when I believe my heart is two different things? I said, no, no, no. You need to get things straightened up. You need to go back to those people that you denied your faith in front of and get it right. He eventually did. He eventually come to church one time with a hat on, glasses on, sat. You know, we, we sat in these little kind of sofas in a 
U-shaped thing, and he's sitting right across from me, and I look at him, big bruises under his eyes. His, his brother had told me, if Bob that remains a Christian, I will kill him. Bother paid the price. Church still started to grow. Friday uh, prayer breakfast one morning, we were there gathered for prayer, and the two of the guys are talking about how the, their, their parents, their, father, their, their fathers were arguing outside of mosques. Saying, your son led my son away from Islam. No, your son led mine away from Islam. So it's Bada parents and I believe Mubarak's parents arguing there. Their son had been taken away from Islam to Christianity. And I'm hearing this going on over this discussion with about five or six guys, and, and I just kind of looked, looked away, and, and I just thought, thank you, Lord. And a smile came across my face. And the guys looked at me and said, look at Bob, he's smiling. They didn't understand. I was so pleased with what happened. They're being a light. They're being sheep in the midst of wolves. And it's affecting their society. So I was just I was so pleased with the, the young men and women. At the time, also Hisham came to one of the meetings. And Hisham was the guy who's on the border of becoming a Christian or not because all of his friends were becoming Christian. But yeah, he told me one time, look at Bob, there's two things that bother me about Islam that keep me from giving myself to Islam. Was the one is that the violence within Islam and also that Muhammad, the prophet, was a, really a kind of a pervert. So he didn't, couldn't give himself to Islam because of that reason. But he was attracted to our, our group, our meeting there, but he, he wouldn't commit himself fully so he still was in the neighborhood with these other guys, and the, the owners of the beer, the Sahab al-Hay, we called them, they were the Islamists. They're there. He's hearing things, and he comes to a meeting on Sunday morning. He said, the Sahab al-Hay, the owners of the beer, are saying they're going to consider our group, the church, as a terrorist organization, and Bob as the president. So I'm sitting there, and I'm, I hear that. And all the eyes, all the youth there, the Moroccans, they, they looked at me. And they were wondering, what is the shepherd going to do? They came up to me and said, don't worry, Bob. We will tell you when it's time for you to get out of here, okay? And they kind of surrounded me like musocks around somebody. A little, you know, it's kind of cute in a way. But those words... Bob is going to be the president of a terrorist organization. Also, Hafidawi, the man who was, should have been the, the pastor of the church, older gentleman, a believer, his brother Hajj. Hajj told him, told him he was going to get, he was going to get Bob. I'm going to focus on him. Hafidawi was dying of cancer. Went to visit him one time in the hospital in Rabat, the capital. And talking to him, and he starts crying. Hafdawi, what's wrong? Don't worry. You know, you're going to go to be with the Lord, and everything's going to be okay. He goes, no, I'm afraid. I, tell him, I said, don't be afraid. The Lord's with you. Don't be afraid. He goes, no, no, Bob. I'm not, I'm not afraid for me. I'm afraid for you, my brother, my brother. All, you know, all this information is coming to me now. now. I'm thinking, you know, in the quiet of my home now, I remember one time taking a shower, and there's this fear of, like, claustrophobic fear came over me. Oh, I started thinking, wow, I'm going to go to Fez today. And I said, oh, Fez, on the way there, there's always these trucks passing, and every now and then you hear a truck ramming into a Peugeot, a smaller car, and just squishing it. They could do that to me. At nighttime, I would get so frightened, I had to listen to Christian music in order to even go to sleep. See? I was preaching to them all the time. Don't be fearful. Don't fear. God's big. God's great. We have meetings at the, the old house in the old town. Little, you know, little pathways there. Nighttime, they would go out. Two by two, the believers would go out, just you know, not cause a big old stir, all of them. Two by twos, and I would always lock up. Go down this dark alleyway, little dim light there. 
passing down there all by myself. Some guy passes me. He passes me. This is what I was doing. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'll die for Christ. I'll carry my cross. I tell you, when the time comes to put out your hands, that's what you want to do. Bring him back. No. Hmm. 98 came, and uh, we had to go home for uh, have a child. My, my wife was having trouble in the pregnancy, so we went home. While we were home, police came to our home and took uh, all my library away, took uh, the guy that was house-setting to the jail. They also took four Moroccan believers to the jail, a couple other Canadian missionaries, and they put them there in jail. So they were in jail, and uh, they were really mistreating the Moroccans. Had for two, only, only by law, for two days, they could keep them down in the dungeon, as they call it, a thing about six feet wide and about 15 feet long, and they filled it up with about 13 people. Little tiny windows, all they had. One little hole in the ground to go to the bathroom. The whole idea is that it's there to scare the wits out of you, so whatever you are doing you will stop doing it. Well, the four Moroccan believers were, still had their faith. One was a, one was a man and was a woman. They're they married, Muhammad and Stia, and they separated them, and they told Stia, said, your husband says, come back to Islam. He's come back to following Muhammad. And she said, no, he hasn't. <laughs> the others, uh, some of the, the missionaries were wondering how they are doing, so they started whistling I have decided to follow Jesus. And the Moroccans themselves would whistle it back to them. So they knew that their faith was strong. In fact, when they eventually got out, and nothing was decreed against them. They held strong to their faith. We were home. But then we were coming back in to Morocco a couple months later, and we got a letter saying, uh, by the way, you know, this is, we, we were following it by phone, but also somebody gave us a little newspaper clipping saying the police have expelled one missionary from Morocco and are searching for another, Bob Conover. So we were told, don't come back yet. I said, look, at it. everybody knows in our church we're coming back mid-May. If I did not come back then, what would we have told the church? Bad example. So we went back, and we were, I know the time's basically up here. I just... One minute to give you a... Went back to Malaga, Spain to get over jet lag. And the day before we were to go back into Morocco on the boat, a ferry boat from uh, Algeciras, Spain, into Tangier, I started hyperventilating. I, <sighs> you talk about the whole thing. Oh, you know, they're going to be waiting for you. In fact, my, my arms started to contract like that. Somebody met with me in prayer, took a little prayer walk. Next day, we got on the boat, crossing the... The Straits of Gibraltar, we go to the police, we give them their passport, and they check on the computer. We thought, everything's all good, and everything. We're outside eating our last ham sandwiches for a while, and then, then all of a sudden I hear, Robert uh, came to me and said, you got problems with the police, McNez? And I said, uh, no, but they might have problems with me. <laughs> so they arrested us, and uh, anyway, long story short again, but... I had a court case. They, they decided that I had not broken the law. So when it came down to it, I was facing the, uh, the representative of the king, and I said to her, the lady, lawyer, and I said, okay, what, uh, what's the story here? Do we get to stay or not? And she said, you can stay, but if anybody wants anything, to know anything about Christianity, you go tell them to buy a book or something like that. I said, ma'am, two things in our faith we cannot do. We have to do it, obligatory. One is tell people about Christ. Two is that we're going to meet as a church. And that's what we're going to do. And she just shrugged her shoulders. Well, eight months later, the police called me and said, you got eight days to get, get out. Eight days. But we left, and I went back, actually. Uh, we were expelled into March of 99. I went back a short visit in about 205 and met there. Some of the believers had left uh, the, the city. And I saw Bashir, one of the dear brothers there. Still waters run deep. Bashir was always kind of the quiet fellow. But now here he is. He's running a meeting in his house, going to another city, bringing them all together, carrying on the work. And I said, wow, 
Rashid, thank you for carrying on the work. Thank you. And he just said to me, he said, Bob, I'm just doing what you did. Well, I was doing just what the Lord told me. The Lord told me I will build my church what he said I would do. But during that whole time, things he told me, be pure, be patient, work hard, be courageous, pursue the weak, don't be ashamed. Christians never have to apologize for the truth. And above all, give glory to Christ. Amen. Thank you. Our gracious God, I thank you for those brothers and sisters there in Morocco who have endured so much over the years and even now presently, God. Thank you for those. Thank you for your word which encourages. Thank you for the word which is our standard. And above all, we thank you, Jesus, for you being our shepherd. In your name we give thanks. Amen.